Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be doing something very new for Writers on Film. First time I've ever done this. I'm going to be talking to three different authors at the same time. They are part of the We Are the Mutants um, website, which is a, a fascinating website which deals in sort of 60s, post-60s uh, cultural history and looks at lots of things, uh, music, books, culture generally, politics, the, ho the whole underground culture, the counterculture, looks at all these things. Uh, and they've written a book, and the book is called We Are the Mutants, The Battle for Hollywood from Rosemary's Baby to lethal weapon they are kelly roberts michael grasso and richard mckenna and uh we we talked about their book what they do in the book which is really fascinating is they put two books two films sorry together they sort of bang them together and see what happens and some of the pairings are absolutely uh well all of the pairings are fascinating all of them are kind of surprising and all of them bring out stuff which is uh which is really really anyway uh, enough from me. This is a great conversation. You'll enjoy it. The best argument for it is the conversation itself. So I mean, without further ado, uh, if you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, spread the word as wide as you can. We're getting loads of listeners and we hope to get mo loads more with your help. You can follow me on Twitter at DrJohnTDRJONTY. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. <music> Congratulations on the book. 
Um, absolutely in my wheelhouse of uh, of um, uh, of interests, I guess. And the, the, from the from the cover, I just thought <laughs> this is this is amazing. Which I will describe to the listeners, even though uh, I'll put a I'll put a image up on the podcast. But it's uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Apocalypse Now, Star Wars. I think that's uh, Night of the Liv- Living Dead. In the in the in the back, is that Night of the Living Dead? The sort of silhouetted figures. I think we were just shooting for like a suburban family that was doomed, but it could easily also be zombies. Right. Right. Yep. Okay. Plus the shadowy figure, illuminated by light, very reminiscent of the Exorcist's famous um, ah, uh, movie poster as well. So. Yeah, the it's meant to be more of a collage of of uh, of aspects of the of the films that we talk. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Brilliant. So let me first ask you uh, if if you like. Actually, I think the best thing to do would be for you to sort of we'll go around and individually identify yourself and say um, uh, maybe uh, how you came towards writing writing about film and how you came to to sort of join this collective that you you have together um michael if you want to go go first oh well thanks uh john uh i'm mike grasso i am a senior editor at we are the mutants um richard and i have a kind of a similar history when it comes to uh how all three of us got together which is i, I think basically richard and i wrote kelly fan mail back in oh gosh probably 2014 2014 something like that um just saying how much we really loved his site two warps to neptune and uh from that sort of gushing fan mail we are the mutants was born a little less than a year later if i if my memory is correct kelly <laughs> yeah that's about that's right yeah um i mean they both sort of contacted me separately and then richard actually ended up uh, writing some stuff for two warps to neptune and i thought this you know this collaborative aspect interested me right it was just me sort of writing this blog and suddenly you know others are sort of interested in the same thing so that's how we are the mutants came about i mean once mike and richard uh said you know they were into it that was it i mean it took us i think about six months to come up with uh um, some articles that we could that we could run um and sort of fix up the site but that's that's how it got started no, I'll just say that my big mistake was the same as Mike's. I sent Kelly an email saying I liked his site and then ended up getting drawn into the nightmare <laughs> that ensued. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, it's interesting actually reading the book and having this idea of like a collective, um, uh, critical collective. I mean, uh, because it sort of feels to me a little bit like how how things were in the 60s and 70s it sort of seems like an idea from the very period that you're interested in well that's super interesting i've never even sort of thought of it like that but yeah that's where the sort of network comes from right uh silicon valley university of berkeley um i was just surprised that you know they both liked me I don't think it was I, like I don't think I've ever said that, Kelly. I didn't have I ever actually said that. <laughs> or put up with me, I should say. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Um and because we've been sort of writing together for so long, you know, six years, six plus years, you know, we told uh Joe Banks at the quietest, it, it's you know, we sort of came up with this this unified theory where we're both just sort of all three of us would riff on one another and you know, often when we're writing a piece 
our research material is just something the other one has written for the site. You know, so we we're generally we go pretty deep uh, when we when we research a piece. So, you know, we're, we're all in this, the same wavelength, and I think film is probably our our favorite media mm. um, if we had to choose. And that's sort of how this book came about. Um, I mean, the original pitch was not necessarily film. We wanted to do essays about all all, all different um, sort of uh, media subculture. Um, you know, an essay about hitchhiking in the '60s and '70s and why it was important and disco and punk. But uh, it turned out it just wasn't. It wasn't uh, in terms of sales, not something publisher was looking for. So we just sort of flipped it and, and thought it would be interesting to do a book on film. And each of us sort of picked the films we wanted to write about and, and riff on each other, like throughout the book. And, and so you had this idea that uh, this sort of thesis, uh, as you say, that you, that goes through the book and, and the practice that you, that you, you, the way you express this idea is by putting two not necessarily obvious films together and kind of bouncing them off each other to see, um, you know, it's like theoretical physics. You're sort of shooting the, the, <laughs> the large Hadron Collider. You're sort of sending two films around and, and seeing what happens when they crash in the middle. Um, how did you sort of, um, how did you sort of divvy those up? And did you sit down and have a, a group discussion and say, or did, or did you just come up with pitches for each other and then uh, and then sort of do it that way? As I remember, the, the, the pairings kind of came naturally, more or less. Um, as you say, a lot of them don't seem very obvious on the surface. But I think once we decided we were going to do this whole idea of like, as you say, kind of having two movies kind of scrape up against each other and see what kind of friction results. I think it became obvious for a lot of us. I mean, we, we also have a lot of lost chapters that didn't make it into the book. A lot of lost pairings that, you know, one of the ones I wanted to do was blue velvet and back to the future. And when I did a little bit of Googling, I found out there are many, many essays out there comparing those two films, all of which were very good, but I did not want to retread any ground that uh, was apparently obvious to a whole bunch of other people out there. And I think as well. Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. No, I think, I mean, we'd spent, film is maybe one of the things we've spent less time on on the actual website in terms of the, the articles we've put up, but we've always spoken a lot about films when we're chatting, you know, just amongst ourselves. So a lot, of, we'd kind of built up, I think, a huge amount of interest in, or films that interested us and the ideas about them that had never really found a, a way into the site. And the book kind of provided a, a bit of an ideal pretext for putting those together and look at, I mean, like I say, Mike said, there were a lot of pairings that didn't make it um, some particularly atrocious ones on my part, but it's probably not a bad thing they didn't make. But we had that was the hardest thing, I think, was whittling down, mm. you know, these pairings. I think originally the idea was we were going to have like seven or eight pairings for each section. Mm. And I think, you know, we ended up with four with four for each section which i you know i think seven you know seven would have been too much um but yeah there were there were a lot of we could do another book you know with the with the pairings that we that we had to sacrifice oh well please do i mean that's that's um 
I, 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 I'm ashamed to say, Mike, that when you said uh, Blue Velvet and Back to the Future, I thought, that's never been done immediately. I thought, that's, go for it. I want to read you, that. Now you tell me. John, go. do you know that that's exactly what I shouted when I found, like, again, multiple blog posts of people who, and again, they were all, <laughs> they were all really, really great. And they were going to hit the same area I was going to hit, which is that, you know, 1950s America was very incestuous. Back to the Future and Blue Velvet have very, very similar themes as far as that's concerned. Like, it was... It, you know, but it's, you know, again, I think that kind of led as a springboard to us kind of splitting these movies up into three periods as well, because I think it's very clear that the movies we chose for the 80s differ really, really seriously from the ones uh, that came out during that, uh, again, sort of like, you know, <laughs> studio rebels, quote unquote, period of Hollywood that we try to, you know, kind of cut down to size in the book. But you know, it, it became clear to us that the that the themes that these directors were exploring uh, and, and screenwriters changed a lot over the 20 or so years that we look at in the book. And I think another thing that I noticed, I'm not sure I was aware of it while we were doing it or even while we were writing the, um, the, the stuff on the website, but was the a sort of irritation with the, the, the sort of dominant narrative about uh, you know, the, the sort of raging bulls thing and stuff, and just the way people speak about direct. I don't know. I think all three of us share a little bit of kind of kind of gets on our nerves a bit when there's this very pat narrative that gets trotted out and leather jackets and people throwing over desks and, rah, rah, and smoking cigars. Just, just kind of because it just seemed like there was a much bigger world of things going on and you know and and it's it's like the sort of survival thing isn't it you see the ones that made it big and everyone knows whereas a lot of the other stuff which may have been just just as interesting often ends up being quite marginalized or just disappearing you know you know and the other factor is we wanted to make sure that all the films we chose were genre of some kind or another i mean i i think you know mm. i mean maybe it's a little you know loose to throw documentaries as a genre i i cover you know one mockumentary and one documentary in my chapters but we, we just wanted to make sure it was from those, you know, some of these films got critical and commercial success. You know, a lot of them didn't. And we wanted to kind of, you know, be a little bit ecumenical about what we accepted into sort of the idea of genre film. Um, you know, we've got police films, we've got thrillers, but we've also got sci-fi, horror, you know, all that stuff as well. I think if a handful of people watch Parting Glances and Suburbia and Seconds, then, you know, we're all happy because those are all incredible films that I think deserve a wider audience. Hmm. So that was another thing that was fun about writing a book was, you know, we got to write about films that we really admire and like and think deserve a wider showing. So, you know, I, I've already had like a couple of emails where, uh, you know, readers are saying, you know, I can't, you know, I just watched Suburbia or I just watched Parting Glances, you know, thank you for that. And that's, that's really all I, all I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I want in life. Someone to <laughs> someone to follow me on Letterboxd. Someone validate my selections of films. The kids <laughs> have to be made aware of Phase Four. You know, it's like it, it, it definitely it, that kind of vibe to it. That's yeah. right. The ants yeah. will kill you. You oh, never man. know. Man, that's. Um, I was reading uh, Quentin Tarantino's uh, cinema speculation over the over the holidays, and um, the thing that I find funny, and it goes back to what Richard was saying about the Peter Biskin sort of narrative of uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, um, is that he's he sort of has this 
mantle as the sort of ultimate genre guy and then he sort of starts ripping into something stuff like towering inferno and saying oh that was you know this piece of i watched towering inferno the other day and i was like okay it's it is what it is i'm not making any great claims for it but as a piece of genre cinema it's it's it really works you know it's, it's really good. it's really... i don't want to hear anybody knocking erwin allen yeah ever right. yeah no I'm... I noticed that you're a bit of a Killdozer fan there as well, John. So oh, I know, that, yeah, I know. So we've got that there. Uh, <laughs> don't was... knock Irwin Allen. Leave How Irwin many Allen must die? <laughs> yeah, the finale with the water is quite good. Yeah, I mean, it's very, very well done. Yeah, honestly, I... that might be one of the genres we didn't get a like chance to really dive into in the book. Is we've talked about it on the website quite a bit. The, the '70s disaster film. Um, you know, again, there's a lot of obvious things you can say about that genre. Uh, as a manifestation of American anxiety in the 70s. But they're also just really, I mean, again, they're just sort of the broadest sort of appeal. You've got these guest stars from the golden age of Hollywood that all the old folks in the in the audience will be able to recognize and some folks from TV. And like, it, you know, basically there's a reason why they copycatted Airport, they copycatted all these other films is because people went to go see them. They, they were just as huge as The Exorcist, you know? Absolutely. I suppose they also tended to be really good receptacles for just dumping in loads of the hot topic issues like earthquake and stuff. There's always like it's just like ten of the things that people get pissed off about them and throw them in as well as an earthquake, and that'll be the best film ever. And it sort of is the best film ever. So I I, I thought it was funny about um in the end of Towering Inferno, uh Steve McQueen says to Paul Newman, the next time one of you guys wants to build one of these, why don't you ask us about it? He's like, yeah, maybe I will. I'll see I'll see you tomorrow morning. And he's just like, I've got a feeling firemen were consulted about you know, building shit. Oh, what has this country forgotten about sensible city planning? And that's like the, the lesson of the film, right? But, it's, but it, is, it is, is funny that there are, you know, so many of them are so firmly sort of, anti-corporate and anti-capitalistic i mean we talk about it we talk about that on the site as well that, that the politics are usually pretty progressive yeah they're kind um, of all over the place i mean oj simpson yeah. i mean forget who oj simpson is for five seconds uh, but <laughs> you know he plays a black um, a major sort of active black character in the film and there's no mention of his race throughout there's not it's it's like a non-issue mm. you know which is which for the 1970s is in itself progressive mm. Mm. you know um so let's uh, sorry let's talk about films that you actually do cover in the book because <laughs> but uh, thank you for the link you did you sent me a link to to the website for the for the disaster movie so if you do go to the website uh you'll be able to to read up on that as well dear listener um so you start uh in the late 60s uh, so proper, properly the inception of what what is going to be described as new hollywood with rosemary's baby and uh martin scorsese's bloody mama is your first pairing and then you do uh peter watkins punishment park wild in the streets seconds watermelon man and the exorcist manson uh, uh, those are the the pairings as you go through um let's let's start with uh well let's start with rosemary's baby bloody mama that's that's uh that right there is uh is getting off to the races <laughs> yeah it, it took me a while to to come up with a good one to go with rosemary's baby i had written a bit about the novel rosemary's baby on the site um the movie's quite different um a lot of the sort of uh political social issues are taken out um of the movie 
um, probably because, you know, Roman Polanski was not American and didn't have a, a great understanding of those issues. Um, but they still sort of come through in the film. And I think the reason I start with Rosemary's Baby is because, you know, it really is that a, the most apocalyptic point in American history where you've got Vietnam, um, you know, the uh, assassination of MLK, uh, Robert Kennedy. Um, and there's just this sense that everything is is falling apart. Um, and of course, you know, Rosemary's baby, here's poor Mia Farrow, who's, who's about to give, who does give birth to the Antichrist. Um, but also there's, I think, uh, you know, we sort of see Rosemary as this feminist character, which is, which is interesting. Um, because at the very end, you know, she has to decide, um, what she's going to do. And in the book, she actually thinks about grabbing the kid and jumping out of the window, killing them both. Um, but in the movie, you know, after a little bit of screaming, you know, she accepts the child and sort of the life and, and the antichrist that that's been born. So I'm, I'm not sure that's exactly, uh, feminism. Um, but I do, you know, and of course, Roger, Roger Corman. It's not exactly feminism. Nurturing the Antichrist isn't exactly <laughs> feminism. I, I guess well, she, you know she chooses the the you know I think the the movie is you know she's she's all about this suburban you know everything she wants is she wants the husband she wants the you know three kids two years apart, um, and she sort of unweaves this incredible conspiracy right against not only her but the world. Um, so, so the, that's why the end is so shocking, right? That she sort of makes the decision that, that she makes and bloody, you know, bloody mama is, is, uh, is Roger Corman film, um, that I really like. And Shelley Winters is sort of devastating and over the top. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a ripoff of Bonnie and Clyde, um, which of course made, uh, was one of the quintessential new Hollywood films and a film I really do like I think um, uh, it's just an amazing, incredible film. Uh, it's one of those that sort of deserves the status that it's that it's achieved, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I just thought sort of focusing on these two female characters um, was an inter interesting place to start. And they're, again, they're both sort of the end of Bloody Mama is just as apocalyptic. There's a huge shootout. You know, everybody dies, um, and you know. America sort of um, obsession with with violence and spectacle really comes out at the end of that film. I think we usually think, you know, we think of Roger Corman as this, you know, king of the bees, he's called, but he really did um, direct and produce some some thought provoking films. And, you know, as a as a filmmaker, he does. I don't think he gets the, the respect that, that he deserves. I mean, without him, there's no easy writer. Um, you know, he, he gave so many people that we recognize as new Hollywood, their start. Um, and, you know, a lot of them will talk about that. Jack Nicholson has talked about him quite extensively, for instance. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, just sort of put Polanski and Corman together in one essay was fun, uh, was pretty fun for me to do. Although it, I think that one also took me the longest to write just because I had to figure out how to, how to get them both together. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of. I also think as well as Polanski is the beginning of that sort of. Uh, I was talking to Adam Neyman about a year ago, and he he came up with this phrase that uh, I really I've stolen ever since the gentrification of genre, um, sort of taking. Oh its... God, Damon! I mean, that's been driving me mad for years. Just that idea that he takes. Uh, a potboiler sort of novel and and turns it into something which is very sort of which if it was released today we would call elevated horror because we would be that you know it would have that cachet that that um something like say texas chainsaw massacre never had you know it, 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 texas mm. chainsaw would be my counter argument for gentrification that's that's kind of like you know you found it in a jumble sale horror that's uh yeah. you, you, night of the living dead too right which right. came out the same year as rosemary's baby would not get the same respect that rosemary's baby got mm. Exactly. Or, or, I mean, even The Exorcist, there's a sense of like, that these are important films. Yes, they're shocking. Yes, they're, but they're part of a big intellectual conversation rather than, I know Mark Commode for one goes on about how, you know, Exorcist isn't respected as much as it should be, but I, I think it's kind of respected far more than, not far more than it should be, but, you know, it's kind of funny. Yeah, that's it gets what, respect. Yeah, exactly. I think it's uh, maybe, maybe at the expense of some, Better films, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. Punishment Park, Michael, you you, uh, you you went for that, the Pete Watkins controversial sort of uh, mockumentary, I guess you'd, you'd say. I mean, I, I was reading, you know, again, we went through a lot of contemporary reviews of these films because, we, you know, we want to land all of these films in their context, socially, politically, you know, mass psychologically, whatever. And yeah, I mean, you know, every time that generations would get together in, you know, student run film centers or whatever and watch these watch Watkins's Punishment Park, I mean, there would be real like recapitulation of the anger on screen, uh, the generation gap between, you know, these folks who are throwing these uh, young political prisoners into a survival park in the desert. Um, that resemble nothing less than a U.S. draft board at the time. You know, these are the kinds of things that draft boards were doing to determine who would go and fight over Vietnam. And Watkins just projects that ahead, you know, a couple of only a couple of years to look at what America might look like if, you know, there was mass detention of young political activists. And um, when people would watch this film in real life, there would be really, really just hard edged arguments between the generations about you know, the kids saw themselves on the screen. They said, that's us in two years. And the parents' generation were like, what do you take us for, fascists? And, you know, the answer is right there in the question. You know, it's it's um, it's a rough film to watch over and over again. I'll tell you that much. Um, and I paired it with Wild in the Streets because they both have this undercurrent of um, detention camps. In Wild in the Streets, it's goofy, right? It's like, we're going to throw all the adults into a LSD camp and teach them how to be loving and peaceful. Um, but that was in the air, wasn't it, at this time? It was the idea that if there was a mass revolution or a ref mass revolutionary movement in America, that we had the detention camps ready for them. You know, Nixon and Governor Reagan both, you know, had secret plans to detain, much as we did during World War II, Japanese and some German and Italian Americans, um, young people who were against the war. Um, so to pair a goofy satire with a really hard edged and really hard to watch satire. I mean, you know, it, it created, I think, a, a chapter that I, I think from for me kind of helped crystallize what the movement was all about. By 1970, 1971, when Punishment Park came out, 
you know, the kids at Kent State had lost their lives, you know, kids at other schools had lost their lives to U.S. soldiers bringing the war home. And at that point, you either had to go underground or you had to go, you know, back and get recuperated into the mainstream, which is what happened to a lot of those activists, um, unfortunately. Uh, but a good pair of movies, I, like I said, it was rough to watch Punishment Park over and over again, but I, I really, really enjoyed how well it kind of rubbed against Wild in the Streets. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing you've got to about Kent State, you know, the, the shooting that took place there when unarmed demonstrators were shot by the National Guard, murdered, essentially, um, yeah. was that when they did opinion polls a week later, mm-hmm. majority of the US population, according to the polls, supported the, the military action. Was, you know, yeah. it wasn't there wasn't an upsurge of anger or, you know, uh, in, in the, the Nixonian sort of silent majority, if you like. Um, exactly. I mean, could it be that the, the, there's a sort of almost like a demonic um, reflection of the, the hippie commune in, in these, you know, you're, you're gaining a sort of, you, you have this utopian idea of a small society, a, a sort of, and then the Optican sort of uh, prison idea Mm-hmm. I mean, it's coming from John Stuart Mill, isn't it? It's coming uh, as well from sort of like a utopian, essentially. I, you know, I, I made the the note in in the Punishment Park chapter that that Watkins picked the desert for a few reasons. One is that it does speak of America and sort of that you know frontier that has now disappeared, and it's the same landscape that they would shoot you know cowboy movies on. But who else hung out at a cowboy movie ranch? Um, Charles Manson and the family. I mean. It, you know, the idea that these kids are now being thrown into a dystopian, you know, um, situation in the desert. I think it, it calls up all of these different images that people had seen over the past three years when this movie came out. And that includes the Manson family. And that includes sort of the idea that, you know, horrible stuff is happening out there in the desert, whether it's the invention of a nuclear bomb or people being detained in, you know, mass detention camps uh, or, you know, the young people plotting and planning revolution, whatever form that takes. Um, Watkins didn't choose to put it in a heavily wooded area in the Northwest or something like that. He picked the desert. And, uh, I think for a lot of reasons that, that, uh, uh, rang true and, and sort of felt very American, you know, very quintessentially American. I, I was going to say it's a, a kind of unique, I mean, we, we, I think we have one in Spain, but in Europe, the, other than that one in Spain, which Sergio Leone made such great use of, uh, that's the only desert in Europe. You know, so if you're talking about the West, you're talking about Australia and and America and the United States as being the two countries which sort of have, you know, have desert, deserts as part of their landmass. Um, yeah. I really want to come over to Richard as well in a second, but before I do, I, I, I we have to talk a little bit about um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre because it's uh, it's here. I agree with Tarantino; he calls it a perfect movie. And uh, I, I yeah. utterly agree with him about this. Um, your your sort of argument with, um, I, I mean, you uh, first of all, it's really interesting generically that you're, you're pairing it with a um, a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't <clears throat> I couldn't believe that no one had written about those two films before. I'm still not convinced that there's not a piece or a book out there somewhere that compares them because they're, I think they're just a perfect match. I think initially I tried to get Mike to write it because I was a little afraid to do it. And Mike was like, nope, this one's all you. (laughs) Um, And it it turned out to be, I think, 
of the chapters I've written, my favorite, just, uh, I'm very glad you wrote it, Kelly. You did a better job than I ever could have. So (laughs) I mean, Mike was talking about how hard it was to watch punishment park over and over again. I mean, I must've watched Texas chainsaw massacre, you know, 10 times in a week because that, you know, I had a week to write that chapter and just the screaming and the chainsaw. My God, I thought I was going, thought I was going insane. See, it's funny of those two movies, I would have found Harlan County USA, the tougher one to watch over and over again. I mean, I know there's a lot of hope in it, but it it doesn't, you know, it's, it's just such a grim, you know, sort of situation to watch over and over. And that's, but that's sort of, that's the reality we're talking about, right? That, that grim reality of the seventies where, um, you know, unions were already sort of on the decline. The manufacturing sector was, um, you know, being just de- being destroyed, and everything sort of being shipped overseas. Um, so I really, you know, I just really, you know, when you look at Harlan County, County USA, there's no. Uh, the one of the first things I I noticed is there's no there's no counterculture. In Harlan County, USA, mm-hmm. they don't mm-hmm. have they don't have the the luxury or the privilege uh, of a counterculture because they're just working to pay to pay the rent and to pay for food. Um, and so I thought, you know, and then you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is about basically these hippies, and they it's like they're coming into Harlan County, mm-hmm. you know, um, and all of the of Harlan County, which they don't understand at all, um, you know, and they pay for it. Uh, it's just really, I thought it was a really interesting, uh, I thought it was a really interesting uh, comparison. I, I, you know, what, what, a recurring theme for me throughout is sort of um, narcissism of the counterculture. Um, mm, yeah. I don't know if at times I, you know, I may have felt, uh, I could try to be fair, but but also one of the points I wanted to make was that you know, it really was, they really were born of this privilege um, and this post-war boom that that has, had never been seen before in America and I don't think has been, been seen since. Um, and without sort of that, that privilege, you know, we wouldn't have had the movies like Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde because people had to go see those movies. They had to pay to go see those movies. They went mm. to film school and they paid to go to film school and that's how they saw some of these movies. So New Hollywood really rests on that audience that counterculture audience no, it's a disposable income um, and it's the yeah. the newly made leisure they're not having to get up at six o'clock in the morning and go to work and you know exactly i mean exactly. that's what i always think about um at the moment the british prime minister is talking about making maths uh like a compulsory until you're 18. Oh, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> sorry richard i'm depressing you with that. Uh, but the thing is if you look at the 60s the creative explosion in britain in the 60s was art colleges because everyone yeah. who went to art college became a millionaire you know i mean you, you had mick jagger <laughs> keith richards the, the entirety of pink floyd yeah. Pink uh, floyd yeah you know, all these all these artists, not just artists, but all, all these musicians, all these writers mm-hmm. were all fostered by art colleges, which you would think economically would be negligible. But the amount of tax those guys poured back into the exchequer paid for the whole system. You know, you only need <laughs> you only need 10 of them and you've paid for the whole system for everybody. Yeah. You know? um, 
uh, Richard, I was I was promising to because uh, I think this this goes in very well with Silent Running, which is a film that you really interestingly sort of take to task in terms of that uh, that sort of counterculture and that sort of eco idea that I'm very sympathetic with to some degree. But in the film, you you kind of I, well, I, I don't want to put your argument. You, you give me your argument. I think my main the, the the problem I had with it started from the fact that I sort of felt betrayed, having not seen it for years. And and you know, it's a film I grew up loving, really right. love it, just right. very intensely. And I hadn't watched it for years. I watched it again, and I just the reaction I got was just just I don't know, violent, really angry and uh, and pissed off, and I couldn't work out why. So I think a lot of the writing the the chapter was sort of partly that trying to work out why it was pissing me off so much. And I think it was that gradually realizing that it was not what it, in some ways, what it was claiming to be as a film. It was, it was still macho frontiersmanship. It was still solipsistic. It was still somebody, you know, these people are pissing me off. I'm going to kill them. It, you know, and and because that was being sold to you with these just absolutely adorable drawings that still do my head in i still love those drives um and you know with an immensely engaging and sympathetic main character you you know i kind of fell into that as like how how can this film be wrong this film is absolutely 100 right and i think that was the way the film worked and seeing it again you know after you know spending a lot of time talking to mike and kelly and you know for years of us chatting about these kind of things just an undertone in there that, that just really rang false to me and it really stood out to me now and I, and I think I, that was the reason I was so sort of you know angry about it was because I did feel a bit betrayed by this film that I'd just seen as, a, as an act one of the few acts of kind of you know purity and it just didn't feel like that as an adult it felt very much like you know it that was maybe how it originally been intended but you know that was not the way it had ended up being basically it kind of left a bit of a weird taste in my mouth Sorry, go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say that's. I think that's my favorite Richards chapters. Mine too. Yeah. Thanks, Russ. And all you know, also, Silent Running did not piss him off as much as Poltergeist. I don't know if we'll get to Poltergeist, but that. (laughs) But but Silent Running, I like you say. I you know I still enjoy watching that movie, but you really sort of pulled from it something that I didn't recognize. Like what, and I've seen it. I don't know, probably eight times, eight or nine times. And it's this idea that, you know, his his claim to to care for the world and care for the planet and care for the animals is really just him wanting those things for himself. Yeah. Right. Not it's not really saving them, it's just wanting them for himself. So really he's just this selfish individual who's blowing everybody up. For his own he doesn't, he doesn't seem that comfort, different from right? the rest of the people. Yeah, like he doesn't exactly. he doesn't he doesn't sort of calmly try and talk his <laughs> his colleagues into this thing. He just gets fucked off as soon as he sees them. You know, which you're not really solving the problem there, are you? are not explaining to them, you're just shouting at them. You know, and anyone can shout at people. It doesn't that doesn't make you the good guy. And in so many ways, phase four is the more honest ecological yeah. movie because yeah. it 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 says that. You, you are messing around with nature. Nature will mess right around back with you and it will adjust the ways that it messes back around with you until you're subsumed into it again. And like, you know, there were a lot of 
ecological message movies that were fatalistic in the 70s, you know, Soylent Green, whatever, sort of mainstream ones, little scene ones. But I, I think that's the reason why Phase 4 hits so well as the counterpoint to Silent Running. It's like mm-hmm. nature is implacable. Like, you know, in the end, all of these jetliners with these huge domes on them and Silent Running, I mean, like, we're losing them all. And even if they haven't been lost, they've been taken off of the planet and it separated from the planet that they need to be on. Hmm. I mean, phase four is definitely more like brutally direct about what it's trying to say, which is that it, they're going to come back around and eat you. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're going to we'll, come back we'll around. And we'll deserve it. And we'll yeah, deserve exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not even sure. It's, I think it's like Mike says, it's, it's, it's sort of the fact that phase four decenters humans. Silent running is all about humans. Humans mm. are going to do it. Humans are going to save it. A man is going to save nature. Phase four is like humans are no longer the center. Something and if anything, else... the eco- ecology in the 70s was all about what we can do to fix things. Yeah, yeah. And in, in a lot of ways, you know. Phase four is like nature's things... going to fix you. Exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's, the concept of nature in silent running is like, you know, something kept under glass, like in a, a museum exhibit. It's a diorama. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It, that's not what nature is. That's not an right. ecosystem even, you know. It's exactly, not... yeah. Yeah, like as I said, the thing it's it's kind of sort of an exhibit in a mall. Yeah, you know, it's perfect glossy green yeah. cheese plants. You know, it's a bit like what I used to see at the Arndale Centre in Doncaster in the seventies. Oh, oh, those are nice. The Arndale Centre. That was a hell of a hell of a shopping centre. Oh. <laughs> I've been there many a time. Um, yeah, God, talking about nightmares. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then you've got like, uh, I mean, the one thing that I think is interesting about Richard's reaction to Silent Running and and uh, and it very much, I kind of was disco- rediscovering the film through his chapter and it was making me go, oh yeah, hang on a minute, um, is that these films to some degree kind of very persuasively um, give you a universe in which the people who are at the center are kind of right. You know that this this decision is yeah. right. Uh, I always found that in terms of the Exorcist, what was so scary about the Exorcist was it posited a universe in which the good guys were the Catholic Church, and mm. and you know it's just like shit. Really? I mean, I was brought up by these <laughs> bastards. You know. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. So, um, and you don't go to the movie thinking this is going to tell me, it's a horror film. It's not going to be, this is the Catholic church are right, but it's no, that's everything is wrong with the modern world. And and the only Max von Sydow turns up and sorts it all out, you know, and he was only like in his twenties or something. No, I'm joking. He wasn't in his twenties, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't that old. He seems like ancient in that movie. Um, so who, who did the exorcist? Michael, you did the exorcist, right? Yeah. I, I paired it with the 1973 documentary Manson. They came out at opposite end of the year, but I couldn't, again, like I, I really as grotty as that Manson documentary is, I really love it because it's obviously exploitation, right? It's obviously meant to capitalize on interest in the family who by 72 and 73 were a little long in the tooth. A lot of them had fallen away from the, the sort of like, you know, adhering to Charlie's teachings, obviously squeaky from in a few years is going to take a pot shot at president Ford, but that's in the future at this point, they're still sort of like, they're in a very, they're in like survivalist mode. Basically they're out, they're out in the wilderness. They've got their rifles. And this documentary is done about the killings, the trial, and really tries to, make the Manson family into these misunderstood hippies. You know what I mean? And, and done through this idea that 
Manson did something to the girls to whether he used the sort of 1950s patriarchal programming that was already abroad in, in the sort of society, whether he used some Dale Carnegie or L. Ron Hubbard style mind control tricks to keep them, you know, drugs, whatever. But that movie is really about how scary it is when girls decide what they want to do for themselves. And I found that that was a great pairing with The Exorcist, which to me isn't really a story of the Catholic Church coming to save the day. It's the story of a mother and daughter who, who according to William Blatty and, and Friedkin, cannot survive in the world without a man in their life. So both these movies are really these messages of like men saying that girls need a daddy. And that I chose for the title of the, of the chapter, every girl needs a daddy, which the unspoken part of that is from the Manson documentary, just like Charlie. So whether the Abrahamic God is the same as Charles, I try to prove that in, Mm. in my chapter that the, all these structures of religion, patriarchy, politically, you know, Manson recapitulates them just the same way as Captain Howdy or. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The God that Karras and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the, the Catholic Church follow. It's a missing father. And um, nothing made men, American men more anxious in the early 70s than a family without a father. I mean, nothing's changed, obviously. We're in 2023 exactly 50 years later and the same religious, you know, patriarchal type folks are saying the same exact thing. Um, we need the nuclear family. We need this and that. When in fact it was the nuclear family that created all the psychic stress amongst the daughters of the 1950s American family. Rosemary was also separated from, from her father, I should say. So it's a lot of similarities between those two movies as well. Oh yeah. I, uh, yeah, and again, going back to Rosemary's Baby, there's this idea of the the cult and everything. But she's raped by her own husband while she's asleep. Yeah. And the thing that's scary about that today is she doesn't even seem to know that she's been raped in the you know of like you know. And in America, that was not a crime in most yeah, states in 1968. I mean, that would have been Which something I that in the nobody... chapter. It's really yep. a horrifying reality. It didn't become illegal in all 50 states until the 90s so mm. there's that really you know there's that really uncomfortable scene in the movie where you know she says what do you mean you i was asleep and you still did it and yeah. he said yeah it was baby night you know and she sort of turns her back to the camera she's she's just so incredibly vulnerable and and sick about it he makes some joke about um, it with being like necrophilia yeah yeah uh, jesus so, yeah, it's just a, it's so 
in fact, she was raped by a monster either way, right? If it's Guy, he's this horrible person, but in fact, it was the devil instead. Yeah. Who Guy has, has you know, sold his soul uh, to, to become a star, to become a film star, which... Yeah. Has he sold his soul or has he just sold her? Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry. He's, well, <laughs> I mean, he has... Wouldn't you say his sort of wife and you know he's he's sort of he's got to become part of the coven um so yeah i mean he's he's it's basically a you know it's a faust it's a faustian deal right he's got a sure. he's made a deal with the devil sure absolutely and i think it's interesting of course that um... he's also a male figure in the in the film so it's it's super, that... super male you know <laughs> that regan's mother is a film actress as well um, it's very heavy, very heavily implied that her career got in the way of the marriage, and that's why the husband is estranged and or divorced right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, though, obviously, like Rosemary's Baby and the extras go together, like you know, they're they're oh, yeah. they're they're beautiful together. But yeah, I, I think that like I, I when I rewatched the extras for the book, I found the first third of the movie before the possession so much more interesting than the rest of the film because it was just like how do you you know how do you deal with being a family of two when you've been used to being this like nuclear family of three for so long. And I, I noticed this, you know, when I watch it, it's like the moment that she, that Regan starts to change is when she hears her mother swearing on the phone to her father, you know, mm. like just really just letting loose all of her anger, her righteous anger about what's happened to this marriage and to this family. And it, it's the very next day that like all of her strange behavior starts. And so, you know, my, my, my idea is that like, you know, this, this demon did not come from Iraq. It didn't come from a, you know, like a, like a, a Ouija board. It came from, mm this family splitting up and again like that anxiety for true true, true died in the wool patriarchs that love the catholic church is is going to be it's going to just pro pro provoke nothing but fear so absolutely. absolutely i think john's john's right this is a defense of catholicism i mean from the first frame through the very last it's a it's and that's how bloody wrote it i mean it's definitely a defensive the the, the, the gay director gets sort of uh yeah oft in a sort yeah. of yeah tossed out of the window or yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean it, it, it's it's a film um that i've rewatched many times and it's uh but i think that's what's great about all of these essays is every as, as familiar as i am with with many of these movies each essay made me go not only that's surprising but the surprise wasn't like a reach you know what i mean sometimes when you read uh, some criticism you can go oh, okay i kind of get you i mean tarantino's cinema speculations do involve a lot of like maybe if and if this was this if that was that and okay but the, <laughs> your your analysis was was that that really um threading that needle of being both original but sort of obvious <laughs> do you know what i mean in the way that i was i was totally surprised by it but it had the power of the oh yeah of course you know um uh i mean I'm thank you john that's well, actually very yeah, that's very flattering yeah. <laughs> i think but, i had that moment with every single chapter the ones i wrote the ones these guys wrote like i was like oh right yeah and again like i had to watch a lot of the films especially the 80s ones to kind of get a sense of what these guys were talking about in the eighties chapters and stuff. And like, I was like, Oh yeah, wow, this is a perfect pairing. And it's saying this about that and that about this. Yeah. It, 
and it, it's been it i mean the only thing that's been more interesting sort of just like them putting together my own chapter was was reading these guys chapters when they went through the editing process right right and did you um i mean one of the things that i think sort of goes maybe one of the reasons i'm having this reaction and this and, and this book is so fruitful and interesting is is that um these films are really really good at being very ideological and at the same time hiding that ideology so that it's very seductive. You're just drawn in and you're totally engaged in the film. And and it's almost like an invitation not to think really, while at the same time being totally, you know, elbows deep in in the problems and the, the issues of the day. Oh, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I think that's just that's that's been part of the. I mean, that's something we've worked out by I think writing, writing for the site, and I I don't. Again, it's just sort of this, all of us coming together and and you know bouncing things off one another, and I don't know that it's a a new way of doing things, but it's certainly something that feels felt new to me, right. Um, we have a particular way of analyzing, I think, different media. Mm. And we're always looking for, you know, what does it say about historically what's going on? What does it say about like what's being repressed? What does it say about, um, you know, gender or, or race or, or we try to sort of take everything in and, and, and write about it um, in a way that's not sort of academic. It doesn't use that sort of jargon, um, which is hard sometimes because, you know, um, most of the stuff that's that's been written is comes from that academic field when you're looking at film studies and film criticism and things like that. So I think at the very least, that's um, th- that's something that that I'm proud of. Um, I think all of us, you know, it meant a lot to us to write a book that sort of you don't need a PhD um, hmm. to, to understand it. Um, I mean, it does go sort of deep into uh, um, the times and, and sort of history. But I think if you're willing to sort of engage with that and that's your something you enjoy, um, I think it's it's accessible for, for everyone. But yeah, uh, just the, uh... the way... Sorry, go ahead, John. No, absolutely. I, I was just going to double down on that. I think I actually think in, uh, the way you bring back the real world into these films and how they're engaging with things that maybe people have forgotten about or maybe people just didn't know, you know, um, that's that brings these films alive in totally different ways and totally, you know. And the fact that somebody would be going to see Death Wish and Escape from New York the same, you know, in the same year, in the same same cinema, or maybe, you know, the same date night or whatever, mm. and reading the newspapers and watching the news before they went to see it and listening to a record before on the radio as they, you know, drove to the cinema. These, uh, you know, you, it kind of recreates a really, uh, it brings it back back to life, I think, and, and gets away from this deification of of the sort of nostalgia of the 70s and 80s uh which which yeah isn't conducive to to the good discussion no thank you joe that's very good to hear man that's what we were aiming for i think i think you bring up the audience john 
you know, seeing Death Wish, Escape from New York, seeing all these movies. I think that's something a, a lot of people forget that if you don't have an that Hollywood's always just going to be about making money. And then if if your movie's not going to doesn't have an audience, it's probably not going to get made. So there was an audience for a particular kind of film in the 70s and Reagan was elected, right? People's ideas were changing. There was a new audience in the 80s, right? I mean, it's not, you know, and you say, oh, well, you know, the 80s totally sold out and all these awful movies and the 70s was this golden age. There were plenty of incredible movies in, in the 80s. And I'm not talking about Back to the Future. I'm talking about like, you know, the Coen brothers started in the 80s. Jim Jarmusch started in the 80s. Um, yeah. You know, Spike Lee and, and a lot of black filmmakers were able to make movies in the 80s. So it's just to me, it's a it's a disingenuous argument. Um, I think one of the things that Kelly's introduction does really well is trace what the movie business was going through at the time. And hmm. again, something really did something very fundamental did change right in that period where Jaws and Star Wars came out. Um, and it wasn't just about tastes in the audience. It was about actual physical brick and mortar like cinemas. And, you know, wh where where were you watching your film? Was it in a one screen movie house in a small town? Or was it in a 16 screen f movie factory that could, you know, service all of these people buying tickets at once? And the era of the blockbuster that that kind of came in with, with Spielberg and Lucas it changed the business and you know we again kelly talks about it. lucas made a a vietnam parable where <laughs> we were asked to identify with the you know with the Viet Cong and, and sort of underdogs throughout history but by 1983 and by the time the return of the jedi came into the film i mean the messages in, in film were overtly patriotic right they were they were basically saying you know vietnam didn't happen here we are now um, we're cleansed of that sin. And, you know, like we find a lot of interesting stuff in those mainstream movies in the eighties in this book as well. But, but as, as Richard, as sorry, as Kelly said, like the important stuff was happening on the margins in the eighties. And it had something to say about this Reagan revolution that Kelly mentioned. I should also mention that a lot more women got the chance to make films in the eighties. Um, I talk about that in the introduction as well. It's important as well. It's still I relatively tiny number unfortunately but yeah I, I, and uh, i mean it has to also be said that it, it was difficult to be a woman in this the films of the 70s i mean if if you were a woman in the films of the 70s you 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 got raped i mean there was just no no two ways yeah. around about it you yeah. know and it's, as, as part of the you know i mean have you um one film i watched recently for the first time was looking for mr goodbar um and it, it's it's that's such a rough i mean it's i i'm so undecided on that film because it's so but but i I'd, I'd like to read an essay by one of you guys uh about that film paired with with i don't know straw dogs or something as, as a mm, way of cruising oh you know i was gonna say cruising yeah <laughs> Richard, <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah i mean yeah. Where, where where is the danger located when when you are talking about sexual liberation um, between heterosexual women and homosexual men and it's like yeah i mean it, it you know you can be an undercover cop like al pacino and go undercover and you know defend yourself from a from a serial killer it, it, it but again like that that's that's what that's what those movies are about it's like what, what is the price that we pay for this sense of liberation how far can you take it you know and um 
you know, again, like a lot of these messages end up being very sort of, you know, retrograde who deserves, you know, hmm. to be, to be murdered, raped, whatever it, it, it's, it, it, I, I get into it in the exorcist chapter. It, it's, it, it, it's really, really hard. Like I said, when you've, when you've seen contemporary feminist critics were all over this, when they saw the exorcist, they're like, this is a, this is a pornographic movie. Like this is a fantasy hmm. about what happens to a little girl and it, it's a fantasy written by men. And I, I think that you're right. I think character women characters with a very few exceptions in the seventies um, really are asked to either be, uh, you know, the adoring helpmate of the, you know, like Badlands, you know, like, or, you know, somebody like Ridley Scott comes along and says, okay, there are, there are several people on this uh, space cruiser and uh, the genders are, are not important. We'll, we'll assign them when we do the casting. And that's exactly how, alien was cast it was you know supposedly anyway cast to be gender neutral any of the characters could have been played by either gender so and i think so much of new hollywood is rooted in that this idea of masculinity mm. you know tough guys and and it just it, to john's point it gets you know it gets kind of exhausting if you watch these you know enough of these pictures um one of the ones that richard and i talked about is five easy pieces Mm. Um, you know, Jack Nicholson's this frustrated piano player. And there's this famous scene in the diner where, uh, the waitress, the, the, uh, elder, older waitress comes over and he wants to make a special order. And she says, no, we can't do that. And he totally goes up on her. Um, and it's just a total asshole and everybody ate it up. The audience ate it up, but, but it exposes, I think that the, the counterculture had no relationship with the working class. They didn't really understand the working class. If they did, you know, Jack Nicholson would have understand what, why this waitress was telling him he couldn't have exactly <laughs> what he wanted to have. Right. Yeah. But he's so, he's so spoiled and so privileged that he doesn't understand why he can't have exactly what he wants. So just this, this underlying disconnection from, from, from the working class, it, not just generation, uh, you know, generationally, sure, but also, you know, the, there was a large number of young people who were part of the working class who were not hippies or part of the counterculture. You know, the counterculture was a minority in, in America. They just got you know, a disproportionate amount of, of press. And yeah, my so mum and dad, <laughs> my mum and dad were growing up in the 60s. I was born in 1972. And, Same with uh, me. You know, my mum and dad, I remember my dad going, oh, I, I never thought the Beatles could sing. You know, they listened to uh, <laughs> they listened yeah. to sort of show tunes the whole time. My, you know? my parents, my parents met in a in a record store. They were working in a record store. They right. didn't have, you know, they didn't just didn't have time. They needed to work and make money. And um, so that was that was the reality, I think, in, in America, at least, um, is that it was this this minority um and i you know i don't want to say they you know i don't hate the counterculture they gave us so much that you know art and and ideas that we you know we're still um that we that, that we're still uh working off of today um but i just think that that was part of um when you when you talk about sort of new hollywood and 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 um sort of film during this time I don't think you can talk about it without recognizing um, the influence of the counterculture and sort of how the counterculture was perceived um, in the country at large. But wasn't the wasn't the counterculture to some degree, or isn't it 
the way we view it today, haven't haven't we sort of depoliticized it in the sense that I always think it's really interesting how, uh, for instance, once upon a time in Hollywood, but but many many views of Manson concentrate on he was a hippie, he hung around with the Beach Boys, he was uh, um, you know into drug use and using drugs as a way, all of which were true. But, you know, the core of his ideology was racism. But you never, yeah. you know, if you had a sort of family fortunes, you know, Charles Manson, how many words, you know, what was the first word that we asked a studio audience and the first word they said was hippie. The second word was murderer. The third word was beach boys. <laughs> Nobody would say racist, but racism was absolutely central to his whole ideology as a white supremacist. But again, yeah. nobody would ever say Charles Manson, the white supremacist. But, you know... If he'd been, you know, reading Mao, um, it would you would definitely have that on line one of every newspaper. You know, <laughs> Maoist uh, Charlie Manson sent yeah. a bunch of so you sort of you depoliticize someone because they're right wing. You know, yeah, and um, I think also you you can't forget that he was almost a full generation older than the, than the members of the family. Like right. you know, grew up in institutions like whether it was orphanages, you know uh juvenile hall like you know th this guy is a hardened con he comes out at the age of like 33 or something like that in the summer of love and he's like oh my god there are all these people i can grift and and, and rook and and basically draw into my web and you know again like he's doing it from the perspective of someone with a lot of life experience on the inside um you know and and you know that that when you're a 19 year old librarian going to college in berkeley or whatever like you know that that's that's a that's a as vast a difference culturally as you can imagine and you know i i mentioned it in the book but like many many people think that people like manson who were who headed cults of personality were just doing the work of destroying the counterculture actively at the hands of cointelpro the fbi whatever the the links are there you know they're 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 there you have to tease them out and you know o'brien does very well in his book chaos to do yeah, so yeah it's an like, excellent book excellent really it, good re read. it really is but like you know, the, the, the fact is, is that like, you know, there's a reason why the media latched on to, hey, the counterculture is over now because this guy murdered a, a film star and her friends. Well, um, they used it, him to demonize the entire exactly. you know, anti-war movement, which, mm -hmm. you know, and if the anti-war movement ended Vietnam one day earlier, then the anti-war movement did the right thing, you know. So I I, I don't want to, again, I'm not, I don't um, politically. I don't politically disagree with the counterculture. I just think a lot of that attitude and, and a lot of the things that they did were naive. Of course, they were young. Um, but their reaction against Vietnam was absolutely the right reaction. And for sort of, um, you know, what John said before, the silent majority to sort of blame them instead of blaming Nixon um, mm -hmm. is is morally you know reprehensible so i just want to get my uh <laughs> pro counterculture uh part out there into the open I, you know it's, what they where they were coming from was actually was absolutely the right um direction i mean they knew what was going on in the war yeah um I, I want to I want to move move finally on to to the eighties and and Richard this was you this was the the chapter that you the the, the section that you dominated. Uh, <laughs> he you, did. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> Something about dominated. 
<laughs> well, you there's four chapters and you re- write three of them. So, uh, is that because you're uh, you, you? What what was the the reason for that distribution? I think it was mainly it was it was sort of practicalities in a sense. Like Kelly said before, we originally had a, a much larger set of chapters planned. Uh, I had a lot. I was I was had several for the seventy section and things. I would look at. Um, Oh God, I can't remember. There were some pretty ridiculous ones, but just because of the way things ended up going, it just seemed more. We need, we kind of concentrated on ones that that seemed solid and were already quite a way on. So I think it was it was more a question. It was basically just chance more than anything else. Not because I'm in any way more of an expert than these two guys. So these two guys are very very expert. And so uh, you start the section with poltergeist and and slamming it up against uh, suburbia, and this is the uh, Kelly mentioned earlier that you got you were getting quite angry about this one. Yeah, I mean the, the poltergeist was another. It produced a very well. No, I mean because I, I still have a lot of affection for uh, Silent Running. I don't have any affection for poltergeist. I just I hated it. <laughs> I'm, and it, I don't know. I, it's a film that I was convinced I'd seen and then when I watched it I, maybe I hadn't ever seen it maybe I just lied to myself because when I was you know it came out as a kid and I hadn't been able to see it I just kind of you know you kind of dream these things into your brain I bet you read um, the novelization that, yes that, exactly that novelization was there was ubiquitous I think I read that I don't think I saw it until I got it on DVD well, that's, that's a lot of my film history is that I read novelizations like mad and then I just basically brainwashed myself into thinking I'd seen the film I was like, I've seen it I've seen it I mean I, I basically lied to myself for years about having seen it I just lied I read the book <laughs> and just told myself I'd seen it so yeah. um Poltergeist just really got on my nerves I just couldn't stand it and it it really I don't know everything about it just seems so fraudulent and just just sickening to me. I, I really had a, quite a. I mean, this is probably a bit of a theme, isn't it? That I have a ridiculously over the top reaction to things. But I think you're just mad because it was supposed to be a Toby Hooper film, and we all love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, there is you know, that. There is, is that. Yeah, there is that. But there's also there's there's just something just fraudulent about it. It feels like of an act of fraud being perpetrated on the audience. It's a lie, you know, in the sense, you know, normally I don't give a shit if it's enjoyable, you know, who cares? But it just seemed like it was so blatant and so in your face and like, yeah, Texas Chainsaw, that stuff's over. (laughs) There's none of that now. It's just this, you know, just like sitting in some shitty restaurant. And Chainsaw Massacre is about counterculture and then Poltergeist is about the boomers, right? I mean, you talk a lot about sort of the parents and how they act and in how you know that's kind of a follow-through right i mean this is what this is what the hippies became well that's that's the thing isn't it it sort of like gives the lies for a lot of what had come before and it kind of shows this and it presents it as something that's sort of admirable i think that's the thing it's not presenting it with any kind of skepticism it's like this is this is it this is great these poor people are being you know does that, that, that the thing that really annoyed me which is silly i suppose is the way that it doesn't look in any way at how shit their parenting is Mm. You know, they get their kids get attacked by a fucking demon, and then the next thing, he's off to work. Yeah, yeah, the kids are off in the bed, same bedroom that they were attacked <laughs> by a demon, which is silly, but it also is quite telling that that's not, you know, even for the people writing it, that's not an issue. You'll just stick your kids back in the same bedroom. Yeah, they just got nearly killed by a demon. Yeah, they'll go back. I, I think the reason so... why I feel so fraudulent is because it uses the trappings of gothic horror, but has none of the because the suburbs are so dissociated from history you have to yeah. throw this sort of like afterthought in the end oh you didn't move the bodies but like 
who cares? Like, you know, like it, it's a suburb, right? Like it's it's supposed to look like any other any number of other suburbs out there in, in, in the American, you know, landscape. And you don't feel like the gothic horror is earned at all. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. It just wants you to give it the money and it doesn't want to earn what it's what it's asking for. And I just yeah, I think that's you've nailed it. Mike. That's the thing. It's it basically is yeah a fraud. It's like a sort of Ponzi scheme of horror type thing, and you know, I just yeah, it's always it struck me on watching it after all those years of um of thinking I'd watched it like you, Richard. But, uh, <laughs> that, that I, I really detected the fingers, the very long, strong fingers of Spielberg all over it, and oh, and I love Spielberg. Oh, yeah. I'm a me big too. I'm a big fan of Spielberg, but it's almost like it's there are some genres which are really resistant to him. He can sprinkle horror in his family entertainments, but when it came to him doing an all out horror, he couldn't get rid of his family. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? He, yeah. He, yeah. He, I think he, he works very well as a subversive filmmaker, Spielberg, like close encounters of third kind is all about the destruction of the nuclear family. By a and man's Close Encounters is also a much more frightening film than uh, than Poltergeist. E.T. Exactly. is yeah. more frightening than Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. true, true. You know, true. Duel is more frightening. Jaws is more like Poltergeist is the least frightening thing in many ways. You had anything to do with it? Just like what is his problem? Yeah, mm. yeah. No, that's a really good point actually. So I've just said he hasn't done horror, and you've just given me four examples. Of... No, sorry, that's not. <laughs> no, no. I mean, you're right. No, you're right. Jaws and Jewel are, uh, are pure horror films. They're not. There's no like. <laughs> sprinkling of horror elements into a Raiders of the Lost Ark, say, which which you could argue <laughs> is is less not really a horror movie, but yeah, but that's that's a, a that's so that's so fascinating. What about moving forward into sort of the nineties and the present day? Um I mean God, we've had twenty years since the nineties, uh twenty three years since uh, the end of the nineties. Um oh. I know, yeah, I know. So <laughs> Is there uh, is there going to be a volume two where We Are the Mutants is going to take on from the nineties on? Because I I'd love to I'd love to see you pair Fight Club with something or Gosh. No Country for for Old Men or you know Fellas, um... I'm afraid I'm going to have to let Kelly and Mike answer this because unfortunately I'm sorry this is so rude but I, I have to go so um, no worries well, Kelly and Mike are way more equipped than me to answer this question anyway so. okay. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you ever so much, man. It's been great, really. It's thank you. And thanks for your comments. Take care, Richard. Bye-bye. I'm, sure. I'm not sure I'm equipped to do the 90s. I feel like the 90s, I don't know. I just We've been working sort of this Cold War um, background for so long. We put so much of research into it i mean if we did the 90s um and also i don't think i'm as interested in 90s films as i am in sort of the 60s to the 80s i don't mike i don't know if you feel the same way here i think one of the reasons why we laugh i mean when we put together real mutants the site like we wanted to concentrate on things that that we kind of remembered right so right. From, from early early you know childhood to, to adolescence um and i think that you saw it in these last you know this last hour or so talking to us and like we didn't really remember all these films quite the same way see the thing is anything i saw after high school say in the mid 90s i can recall with pretty instantaneous like you know recall where i saw it when i saw it the circumstances i was an adult watching movies but you know even you know the ones that i didn't understand the ones that i 
watched on you know UHF TV where they would show them unedited and it was a big deal because you before the VCR you really couldn't see unedited films on television all those movies I watched way way too young like the deer hunter um apocalypse now you know that that showed up on these television channels like the reason why we wanted to focus on those kind of movies in the, in this book is because we knew that we were going to see something new in all of them and I just feel like past again kind of like early 90s I, I may see, I may occasionally see something new, but the distance that the historical distance between now and and the movies that we covered in this book, I think, generated so much of the interest in our in our heads. Is sort of like the world was very different in 1973 than it is in 2023, and that makes it kind of interesting to go back. I, I could talk your ear off about the last 25, 30 years of cinema, but it wouldn't. It it, it it's because history kind of stopped, didn't it? It's because we're kind of in that post, you know end of history kind of you know endless regurgitation of stuff like it, it, it would be hard to to look at a lot of cinema from the last 30 years and not just see the cynical impulses behind it which is not to say there's not been lots of great art movies or lots of great independent movies there have been but i just feel like the blockbusters would be a tougher road to hoe um with the blockbusters of the 90s and beyond i mean that'd be interesting to see to hear what john thinks but i just think it's because films have become increasingly more self-conscious maybe that's not the right but i just feel like it was possible self-aware for sure yeah well yeah i feel like it was possible to make a movie about a killer alligator in 1982 and be totally serious about it totally serious about it in a way that wouldn't happen in the following decades right like sharknado and everything's got to be a parody of a parody of a parody and they're easter eggs Lake Placid, like Lake Placid is. Lake Placid I mean, was good. I like Lake Placid. <laughs> I mean, it, you're right. It's, it's yeah. There's an element of irony there, but it isn't. Yeah. It isn't Sharknado. It isn't silly. I mean, it's ironic, yeah. but it's not silly. Um, I'm 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 gonna push back a tiny bit here, if not if not a lot, because I think that our I agree. You know, we're close to it to some degree. It's difficult to look at it from a historical perspective. Haven't quite got that distance, but as we as we go back, I think, you know, time has a way of concertinering. And so, you you know, Fight Club is closer to Rosemary's Babies than we are to Fight Club. That's not that's quite true. That's uh, not quite true, probably. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't quite done the maps. It's close. Your point it's is very close. Up. We're, getting to, we're yeah. getting to the point where Charles Manson and uh, the Doors is closer to their subject matter um than 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 we are to the doors perhaps that might, that might be a better example um it, it, my my point is if i if i look at the big blockbusters of the 90s i actually see something which again we watched quite naively but the political repercussions we're living with today i mean what what do we talk about in terms of uh we talk about snowflakes fight club we talk about being red pilled the matrix um mm. the Phantom Menace is it comes back in 1999, and we're you know, uh, and we're we're looking at a, a Disneyfied version of what was a counterculture. Uh, in in I I don't know I uh, I'm it's only because I want to persuade you to write this book. It's because I want to read this. <laughs> this is why well, I, I this is why I, I'm I will leave you with this one one thing, which is that th- there's this great bit in the middle of Adam Curtis's hypernormalization mm. where he puts together all of the disaster film and alien invasion film footage from like the early 90s to right before 9-11 and we just see how similar that 
set of spectacles is to the day that the airplanes at the towers. And I don't think I mean, I mean, that's that says it all right there. Right. You know, sort of this idea of spectacle being regurgitated over and over again and eventually leaking into the real world. It's super interesting. But I do feel like it's been it's been definitely stated once or twice already. Um, and I think that, you know, it's funny that you bring up Tarantino, this whole conversation, because I did get the book for Christmas as well. I think we all did. <laughs> and, you know, it's fu- so funny. I've really cooled on him as a director. Once upon a time, I thought it was great. Before that, the two or three films before that, I wasn't crazy about but I will tell you something. He writes about film incredibly engagingly. Mm. And I think that that he, too, also as somebody who came out of this 90s kind of, you know, period where film became kind of self-referential, more self-referential, more sort of aware of its own history. Like, if if anything, he has an incredible knowledge of, of film history and he brings that to bear nakedly in everything he does. I mean, there are there are blatant references throughout, as Kelly said, quote unquote, Easter eggs throughout all of his films. But I think as he's gotten older, he's gotten like to feel like, well, you know what? I want to play with that history a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So let's make it so, you know, the Manson's do, Manson family do get killed when they go into the house. Let's let's make it so, you know, World War Two ends, you know, five months earlier or whatever. Like he he's more interest, interested now in playing with the history than actually just like spitting it out back on the screen. And so I think that's probably the meta modernist rather than postmodernist sort of impulse is to kind of play with the history and uh see how much you can get away with (laughs) Mm, mm. it's fascinating when you were talking about manson earlier i I stopped myself because i thought i'd I'd mentioned tarantino a couple too many times but it is that idea that ironically manson in once upon a time in hollywood should have been closer to one of the reservoir dog characters than than the sort of you know the the hippified distant maybe that's why you don't have him in the movie because if yeah. he got close to the movie you'd go wait a minute he's the same age as rick dalton yeah <laughs> yeah that's that's really good that's really yeah. really good I think, you know what bothered me about once upon a time was my ex i expected the brad pitt character to go back to the ranch and decimate everyone including manson and I, I felt a little let down that Manson sort of got off, didn't he? Mm. I mean, I've only seen the movie it, one it, time. It wasn't but... like Inglorious Bastards where they get to actually show you in great detail Hitler getting machine gunned and, and yeah. burned burned down in the, in the I theater. I feel if you're, if you're trying to sort of get the back get at it. Manson, like, go get him. I So I don't know. I don't, That's just, I sort of thought... Um, you could have even had, had that as a post-credit sting. Yeah. <laughs> he goes and yeah. hunts them down after he gets out of the hospital, right? But I mean, that's the thing, history. right? The Spawn Ranch, the Spawn Ranch um, uh, set piece is meant to be like the gunfight before the gunfight in the Western. Mm-hmm. Right? It's meant mm-hmm. to be like the one where you get a little hint of what's going to happen in the finale, but not quite. He just beats up uh, Clem and, you know, like makes him change his tire. But he, like, he, he beats up Elvis Presley. Uh, oh, no, it's not Elvis Presley, is it? Because Elvis Presley turns up on the horse afterwards. That's it's right. Bruce Lee, it's, which is a... Yeah, well, there you go, right? I mean, that's yeah. the other thing. I want to put my, my fictional character up against this real person. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, you know, Tar- Tarantino, I, he's one of those people who I want to hate, but I end up coming back to his stuff and always kind of just getting, I get something out of it. And I think it's because we came out of that same television fed sort of like cineast idea where, you know, like we, we, we consumed so much film and so much television before the age of 13 or whatever, that it's all just kind of burned into our brains, you know? Yeah. And uh, um, it, it's, it's made him a very deft observer of cinema. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether he's a real critic or not, I can't. I can't really tell. The, the that book is still. I still am not quite sure how I feel about uh, about that book. But uh, um, he's definitely he's definitely uh, plowed his own sort of area of of interest at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, listen, guys. I know one last question for you. Um, recommended books. Uh, could you recommend a film book for uh, for our listeners? Mike, you go first. <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, all right, I'm I'm gonna I'm sorry I'm gonna go off script because I it, it's a book that was foundational to the making of this book. Sure. I, I just want to mention it here. It's not all about film. There's some film in it. Uh, Andreas Killen's 1933 Nervous Breakdown, Watergate, Warhol, and the Birth of Post Sixties America. Please check it out. It's a great time capsule of I think what is the most crucial year in the entire 1970s. Brilliant. It's it's a brilliant book. Yeah. I mean, if I guess if I had to do one book it would be um jay hoberman uh the dream life movies media the mythology of the 60s where he sort of he actually starts in the late uh 50s and goes all the way up through dirty harry and um you sound like peter fonda in the limey the 60s started <laughs> in the 50s and went <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Many, you know, the, exactly <laughs> but i think it's just it's a it's definitely a foundational uh, text in my mind in terms of sort of analyzing film with sort of history and uh, sociological uh, impact um, sort of interweaving um, with each with each film. It's really, really a, a brilliant book. All his books are amazing, but this one in particular, I think, um, is a must read if you're interested in film and film history. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds. That, those are great recommendations. I'm, I'm, I've penciled them in. I'll write them on the uh, show notes. And of course, we can read more of your stuff. We'll, uh, I'll put a link to the book uh, uh, in the show notes as well, but also a link to your website where you uh, you study more than film, and you, uh, you you go really into depth in a way which I think is incredibly accessible and entertaining. And it, it, it I I loved reading your book. I gave it to. Um, Jonah Nazaro, who is the uh, the head of the Locarno Film Festival, and he's a, a fellow genre fan, and and he oh thank you, and he ate it up. He he loved it. So um, oh thanks so much, John. So, nice to hear. Yeah, no, there's um, the, it's it's a book I would absolutely. I think anybody who's listening to this podcast will love this book, and I can guarantee that. So, um, hopefully, you'll all go and buy it. Uh, so thanks so much, Michael and and Kelly, and thanks also to Richard who uh, who had to leave early. But uh, brilliant contributions, all. Yeah, thank you so much, John, for having us. Thank you, thank you, John. So that was my conversation with uh, Richard kelly and michael i hope you enjoyed it uh it was i personally thought it was amazing I, I i really could have could have talked for another hour i hope the guys uh will agree to come back and uh, talk about some other things because um i think there's there's plenty of stuff that we could mine i'd love to get their takes on other 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 stuff as well um their recommended books were andrew killen's 1973 Nervous Breakdown, Watergate, Warhol, and the Birth of Post-60s America, 
and Jay Hoberman's The Dream Life, Movies, Media, and the Mythology of the 60s. And you can find both those recommendations in the show notes, along with links to the book and links to the We Are the Mutants website. Okay, thank you. Oh, uh, next week I'm off to another film festival uh, in uh, Norway this time, uh, the Tromsø Film Festival. So I might be doing some, I might manage to record something while I'm out there and put that up. Otherwise, uh, there will be a gap of a week before the next episode um yeah okay uh, that's it really <laughs> thanks thanks very much for listening thank you very much to ellie atkins for the music and thanks to ali howard uh, for the artwork and thanks to you dear listener for your support your continued support and and uh, and audience take care Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.